Are you looking for something different to entertain your kids? Check out a new podcast for children. Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, is a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. Math is geared towards kids six and up, but can be enjoyed by the entire family. I love how the episodes are under 20 minutes, which was perfect for our drive to school. And my four-year-old really loved the episode, The Pirate Queen. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time-traveling adventures. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras' ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and so much more. New episodes drop every Thursday, and I love how engaging, funny, and educational the episodes are. Your kids won't even realize they're learning about math and problem solving. My son even said he wanted to finish the episode on our drive home from school. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. everyone. Welcome to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mona, where each week I hope to educate and inspire you in your journey through parenthood with information on your most common concerns as a parent and interviews with fellow parents and experts in the field. My hope is you leave each week feeling more educated, confident, and empowered in the decisions you make for your child. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode where I have Dr. Shreya Patel, who is a allergist and immunologist, and she's joining me today so we can talk about eczema, a topic that many of you as parents deal with in your lives. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Patel. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you so much, Mona. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thank you. So tell me a little bit more about you, your training, and your specialty. Okay, yeah, sure. So um, my name is Shreya Patel, and I'm an allergist immunologist, just like you said. I'm in private practice right now in uh, Orlando, Florida. So to get where I am today, I completed four years of medical school. I did three years of pediatric residency, and then I went on to complete two more years of fellowship training in both adult and pediatric allergy and immunology, actually. So although pediatrics has always been my passion, of course, I do currently treat all ages from zero to 99. Awesome. And Dr. Patel has her own Instagram account, Shreya Patel MD. I'm going to attach that to the show notes on this page. But in terms of the pediatric standpoint, what are the conditions that you manage or see mostly in your practice? So I see the whole wide array of allergic conditions and I see allergic rhinitis. I mean, that's commonly known as hay fever, of course. I see asthma, um, food allergies, drug allergies. I also treat a wide array of rashes. So it's actually surprising how many rashes I see in my practice, but I see a lot of hives, contact dermatitis. And then of course, what our topic is today, I see a lot of eczema. And so do I. And that's why I was so happy that we could connect on Instagram so that we can talk about this because so many parents come to me for eczema or any, you know, any general pediatrician. And we are, we are able to manage a lot of eczema, but there are certain cases that they need to go to an allergist or immunologist for. So, you know, through this conversation, we'll, we'll get into that, which I'm, I'm just so excited to educate people on something that's actually really common, uh, common condition that we see in children. So, you know, we're talking about eczema, but as a general pediatrician, 
you know, I see a lot of rashes and I know parents will report that they see a lot of rashes. How would you describe how the eczema rash would look like? Yeah, so eczema is usually characterized by like this itchy, red, and scaly patches on the skin. If you were to touch it, it would feel really rough to the touch because it's dry. Um, you'd usually see a lot of overlying scratch marks, or as we call them, excoriations. If it's been there longer, it'll be um, thicker, it'll be discolored, like you might have some areas that are darker, some areas that are lighter. Um, and then where you'll find it on the body actually, interestingly enough, varies by the age. So in Infants and younger children, you'll usually see it on the scalp, the knees, the elbows, um, and then on the face. But on the face, you'll see it more on the cheeks. And you'll characteristically have what this, the so-called headlight sign, which means like the, the, that the nose is spared. So it's usually going to be on the cheeks on the face. For older children and adults, you're going to see it more on the creases of the wrists, um, the creases of the elbows, the knees. So that means behind the knees. Um, also on the ankles, the face, um, and the neck. Okay. And then, you know, we we always kind of look at, okay, is it mild, moderate, severe? I know that might just be based on how the person who's looking at it is describing it, but how would you, as a, you know, allergist, immunologist, how would you describe or categorize mild, moderate, severe eczema? So if I want to determine the severity of an eczema, there's two major things that I look for. The first thing I look for is how much of the body is actually affected. And then the second thing I look for is the intensity of the eczema. So just generally looking at, you know, how do I calculate the body surface area affected is I look at the head, the trunk, the upper limbs, and the lower limbs. Um, and then you look at it all kind of together and you determine how much of the skin is actually involved. And then for the intensity, I look at four things as well. I look at the redness, the thickness of the skin, um, how much scratching there actually is or scratch marks, um, and then the lichenification. And that's a term that usually you're going to see that more in chronic eczema. And that describes when you see lines in the skin, furrowing, sometimes if it's really bad and it's been there a long time, then you'll actually see nodules on the skin. So usually you can kind of take those two big categories together and determine is it mild, moderate, or severe. Um, a lot of times allergists and dermatologists like to have a real score attached to it. And so we'll actually use standardized scoring tools to determine that. Um, and so one example of that is like the eczema area and severity index, the EASI, that's a common one that we use. So that just gives um, people an idea of what your doctors will use to determine the severity. And you described it earlier that it would be kind of like dry patches. Does it always have to be red or can it just be dry? It, it can be just dry, especially if it's not acutely inflamed, um, but usually you will have some sort of at least faint redness there. But I see a lot of kids who just come and they have like even these circular areas, which we call numular eczema. Um, and they're almost just like this circle of dry skin, not necessarily red. So yeah, you could definitely just have these dry patches of skin and it could be eczema. And numular eczema, by the way, that's actually commonly misdiagnosed or, you know, confused for uh ringworm yes absolutely. sometimes you know in, and i i've seen that right yeah. like sometimes they'll come in and they'll be like well so-and-so gave me antifungal creams and it wasn't getting better and i'm i i'm actually very honest with them i'm like it is really hard sometimes to notice that differentiation so i don't think it's like a misdiagnosis i think it's just that hey it looks so similar you try one yeah. thing and if it doesn't get better sometimes you get your diagnosis that way that nope it wasn't ringworm. It was actually num numular, which looks like a little mm -hmm. coin, like you said, right? I totally agree. They look very similar. It's a difficult thing to yeah. differentiate. <laughs> so in terms of, you know, some children, you know, obviously are possibly predisposed, more predisposed than others. Do you see that there's some 
some relationship in terms of genetic predisposition, family history, what makes a one child more prone to eczema than another? Absolutely. Yes, I do see this. So first of all, eczema is genetically transmitted. So having a family history of eczema does predispose a child to develop it. We also know that eczema has become widely accepted as something that is at least in part initiated by some sort of skin barrier defect along the way. These barrier defects can either be acquired or genetic too. Um, But either way, we know that some children who have these defects are more predisposed to developing eczema along the way. Um, Lastly, there's also this known interaction kind of between the inflammatory cells in our body with genes and the environment. So even though we don't really know exactly, like I'll just haven't been able to pinpoint exactly what these genes are, what these specific environmental triggers are, they do put children at a, at a risk of increased eczema if they do have them. And one common question I get asked from, you know, from families is that, is there a certain age that you would see it by? Or can it develop later in childhood? Or is it something that, you know, if you've reached five years old, you're in the clear? Kind of when would you say kids typically present with it? With it, so most kids will typically present in infancy, so within like you know the four months, six months. But absolutely, you can't rule it out. So it, just because they haven't presented at the age of five, I mean, I see adults who come in for the first time, like I've never had allergies, I've never had eczema my whole life, and now all of a sudden, boom, they have eczema, you know? So no, I don't think that you can say you're in the clear once you hit a certain age, but I do think that most commonly, it's going to present in the younger years. And, you know, talking about how there's there's a genetic predisposition, are there any preventative measures a family can take if they know that they have medical history of eczema or allergies? Yeah, so that's such a good question because as we know, there's a lot, a a big shift in medicine right now towards more prevention of diseases, right? And so for eczema, I think the best prevention is just using the right products the right way. So the the goal should really be to repair that skin barrier and then of course to avoid triggers, whether those may be something in the environment or something in a child's diet. So like, like you said, if a family knows that, look, we have a history of eczema. Let's be proactive about this in this new baby um, that's in our family. So there was a really interesting study done several years ago by dermatologists, which I found really fascinating. And they looked at children after birth, you know, they, they had a group that the parents moisturized their skin twice a day with like a very good, you know, thicker emollient, like aquaphor based type um, moisturizer. And then they had children who didn't necessarily do that. They followed them over time and they found that the children that had that initial um, strengthening of the skin barrier with this moisturizer, they went on to develop less eczema. So that's something that parents should know that if they ha- if their child is at an increased risk of developing eczema, then hey, there's these things we can do to strengthen that skin barrier initially. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom 
chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash pedsdoctalk50 and use code pedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code pedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash pedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code pedsdoc that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c I know I get asked a lot of times about probiotics. (laughs) So that's something else that we could talk about too. Um, It's an evolving topic in the world of AI, to be honest. So one of the main hypotheses for the development of allergies in general is this so-called dysbiosis in our guts. Okay. So this is an impaired microbiota, which essentially means you have this bacterial imbalance in your gut. So people often ask, can this dysbiosis be corrected by taking probiotics, which makes sense, right? Like if I take probiotics and I fix this bacteria milieu, then will I not have as many allergies? And unfortunately, even though that in theory sounds great, unfortunately, there's just no definitive studies yet for that. There's been a lot of meta-analyses out there and they've shown moderate benefit of probiotics for eczema prevention, but because there's uh, of the very low quality evidence and the heterogeneity between the studies, we can't fully give any specific advice on this, there still needs to be more well-defined studies before we can adopt specific recommendations, at least about probiotics and prevention, you know? Um, And then there's another thing uh, with, especially if you know, okay, you know, you have a family history of allergies, family history of eczema, you want to prevent it in your new baby. Breastfeeding is, of course, something that we know has been shown to reduce the risk of most atopic conditions, actually, including eczema. And I'm going to make a point because I get asked this by parents. This does not mean applying breast milk on top of the skin. This means actually feeding the child for what's recommended. I mean, at least six months that's been shown to reduce the risk of eczema. Is there any for, if a family's formula feeding, are there certain formulas that we typically, you know, would use over other formulas in terms in, in treating eczema? So there's nothing that that you can use to kind of treat eczema. There's nothing in terms of formula that, hey, similar to breast milk, like this type of formula has been shown to prevent the development of eczema. However, of course, and we'll get into this a little bit later too, is once we identify if there's specific triggers in the diet, like for example, dairy, then you want to use dairy-free formulas, um, more of the hypoallergenic formulas. That's more just to prevent exacerbating factors. It doesn't necessarily prevent the eczema. And, you know, as I said earlier, we as general pediatricians, we see a lot of eczema. In your opinion, when should a child 
go from seeing their general pediatrician to now seeing an allergist for their eczema? Okay, yeah. So eczema affects um, like 10 to 20% of children, right? So it's so common that, I mean, most of these kids are probably, if not all, are probably going to start with the pediatrician or primary care provider. Um, and I think that from my experience, a lot of the mild to moderate cases are successfully treated by pediatricians and primary care providers. And comfort level varies. Um, I find that some pediatricians are more comfortable treating eczema than others. Some will refer right away. Others will, you know, see them several, several visits before, before referring them. And, and to each their own, like I said, some are just more comfortable. Um, so when would I refer? Well, remember that eczema has a significant impact on the quality of life for both the patient and the family. So I usually say that if you have that initial evaluation with your primary care doctor, your pediatrician, you know, you have the follow-up visit, you still really haven't seen quite the results that you would like to, or the family's not happy, it's totally reasonable to refer to a specialist at that point. If at the initial visit, you're, you're still not comfortable, I would never fault, you know, a primary care provider for sending a patient to me earlier rather than later. Um, and then in addition to that, if the parent or the pediatrician is concerned about possible allergic triggers, like it's in the child's diet, in their environment, they should probably consider referring them a little bit earlier so that we can identify what those triggers are and potentially re remove them. Is there ways that a family can notice those triggers in terms of like if they eat certain food, it flares up or how would how would a family kind of determine that there may be some external trigger causing their eczema to flare up? Yeah. So I get parents coming to me all the time saying, yeah, so their eczema is usually OK. And then when, you know, little Timmy goes and the dog licks his arm, it just flares like right away, you know, and so that's an example of an environmental trigger. Or, for example, little Timmy eats egg, and every time he eats that egg, his, his face just flares up and the eczema flares. So those are just examples of stories that I get all the time. And those would be times that we would consider, you know, let's actually delve into this a little bit more. Let's potentially test to, to these things to see if does the dog need to be removed from the home or if, you know, if that's obviously uh, a little bit aggressive, if, if at least keep the dog out of the um, boy's room or um, just avoid uh, contact. So things like that, that just need to be, that could be addressed earlier rather than later. And if they do come to you, obviously, what is, you, you mentioned briefly about the workup, what does that workup look like or entail? Okay. So um, if a patient comes to me and their history, physical, everything is consistent with eczema. So the first thing I do is I usually assess the severity because really how severe the eczema guides um, how I'm going to treat them and what kind of workup I'm going to do. So um, based on, again, the severity, I make recommendations for like skin moisturizers, prescription topical medications. I usually evaluate for whether there's an infection. And then again, how to, kind of how we already mentioned, whether there's a possible inhalant, environmental, food allergy, something like that, that could be triggering the eczema. To decide that, I can actually skin test right in my office and we can have results the same day to suspected triggers. But I only go to testing if I cannot get the eczema under control with a good skincare regimen. So I usually try that first. Now, the exception to that is the patient that we just described where they're coming in telling me that it's the egg or telling me that it's the dog. And then I can consider testing um, sooner rather than, you know, waiting to try the topical stuff first, but we can start it sooner. That way we can prevent the flares. And I'm just going to stress this point because this is so, so important. I do not do blanket skin testing for all of my eczema patients. 
patients, okay? Food allergy has been implicated in about a third of patients with eczema, um, and testing usually consists of some sort of skin prick testing. It should really just be to a small panel of foods that I usually pick based on the current diet. This is a team decision between myself and the family. I sit down with them. I talk about what is currently in the child's diet. What are they eating regularly? Again, is there something that you know that's triggering it like the egg, right? Based on that conversation, we decide how to proceed with testing. And I always say, and this is something really good for pediatricians and primary care providers to, to tell their patients as well. Is this a good idea for families from the very beginning to come prepared with like a food diary or something that helps them zone in on potential triggers so that by the time they get to the specialist, they can open up that diary and say, look, these are the things that we've noticed over the last few weeks. These are the things we're concerned about. So I still get asked that question though, but why don't you just test for everything, Dr. Patel, please like just do the full panel of food allergies. The reason I don't do this is because there really are a high rate of false positives, okay? So our skin tests, unfortunately, they're not perfect. Even though people think that this is gonna be gospel when they get the results, they're really not perfect. And they lead to a lot of unnecessary large elimination diets that can result in nutritional deficiencies. And actually, if you eliminate foods early on that a child's not actually allergic to, you can actually create sensitivity down the road because their body's not seeing it enough now. And then later when they see it, it's deemed foreign. The food is, you know, thought of as something foreign and they might actually develop the allergy. So I don't like to do these, you know, panel food testings. Instead, I just like to have the conversation test based on certain, um, potential specific triggers. Um, so I can also do skin testing to environmental triggers. So like we talked about dust, pets, pollen, that also is done on a very individualized basis, but it can be part of the workup when it's appropriate. If um, I find that a child's skin is too inflamed for the skin test, we can always do a blood test. But again, with that, I'm very careful about sending unnecessary testing in the blood. Same thing. We can have lots of false positive results here too, especially if you're dealing with that really allergic kid, probably has a lot of that general IgE floating around the body. IgE is an allergic antibody that anybody who's an allergic person just has a lot of this floating around in their blood. It's just a general marker of that. So if they have a lot of the general IgE floating around, then they can have a false elevated specific IgE to like milk or egg or peanut. And it's not truly that they're allergic to that food, but they just have a lot of IgE floating around. And so that's why I don't like to do a lot of, um, you know, a lot of blood testing either unnecessarily. And then lastly, one of the things that can be part of my workup is if a parent is or pediatrician is concerned about a potential contact allergen, then we can discuss patch testing. So this will be to things like chemicals, fragrances, preservatives, things that you might find in the child's laundry detergent, in the child's products that they're using, even dyes in their clothes. So these are things that a patch test can, can tell us. And so you mentioned between the blood and skin testing is one more, I know you said there's false positives for both, but is one more accurate than the other? No, it's not that one is, no, it's not one more accurate than the other. People usually choose skin tests because it's a little bit easier of a test. They don't need to uh, go through a needle stick. They can have results the same day within 20 minutes versus like going, getting your blood drawn, waiting a week to get the results. Um, skin tests are usually more sensitive tests and blood testing are usually more specific. And so each one kind of has their strengths, but um, skin test is generally what's preferred. I'm so glad you brought up testing because as a, you know, in my office, I, I commonly get 
families and this is we should have a whole conversation about testing on we could we could talk for hours about testing but um, <laughs> families will come in and they you know their child is is sneezing or their child has one little spot and they want the whole like you said the whole panel of allergy testing and i'm happy you brought it up because one it's very expensive two it, it used like you said it has a lot of false positives and three if symptoms are mild and we're able to manage it well with just say it's eczema, we're managing it well with um, ointments and steroid creams or whatever it may be. You don't need that because it's being managed. It's not going to change the management anyway. So I, I love that you brought that up because I really want the listeners to know that the testing will, you know, the clinical exam will always trump testing. You know, it's more important to look at the, at the kid. And I love skin testing because the skin testing can kind of get you an idea of, okay, well, obviously we need to avoid these certain foods that are flaring, flaring up. But to just go in and many times, even for food allergies, I want to just be tested for everything even before I introduce food. I'm like, well, that's not really how it goes, but um, not always all the time. But we, should, we can absolutely talk about testing and you know, food allergies at a later time because I do get that, that comment a lot. Do you, um, what are your basic, like going into like management, what are your basic skincare tips for a family who's, you know, obviously taking care of a child with eczema? Okay. So that's another great question because in my opinion, the most important and first step in the treatment of eczema is creating an eczema action plan, which lists out what you should use, how you should use it and when you should use it. So every single one of my eczema patients walks out of my office and they have an eczema action plan in their hands. And treatment is really multi-pronged. So you have to think about skin hydration, topical anti-inflammatory medications when needed, anti-pruritic therapy, because breaking the so-called itch scratch cycle is also very important. Um, some patients might need antibacterial measures if they have like an overlying bacterial infection. And then of course, eliminating the exacerbating factors right in the diet and the environment. So there's a lot of things that go into it. So basic skin care tips though. In terms of what I recommend, so um, remember again, and I sound like a broken record, but remember again that eczema is characterized by a reduced skin barrier function. So this leads to enhanced water loss as well as dry skin. So I usually recommend hydration with warm soaking baths um, daily with an unscented hypoallergenic soap, such as Dove, um, at least 10 minutes daily, like I said, followed by application of a really good moisturizer. Moisturizers um, really are the first line therapy. I prefer the thicker emollients like Aquaphor. These contain less water, more oil than creams or lotions. They also burn less because people who have those like open eczematic lesions, they always complain the children, oh, as soon as they put that cream on, they, you know, they were screaming that it was burning. So things like Aquaphor usually burn less. They also act as both a barrier as well as a moisturizer. So Aquaphor is going to be something, you know, that's clear versus like those white creams. That's kind of the main difference between those. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ertube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs 
and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Other um, moisturizers that sometimes I'll recommend basic skin skincare tips would be like CeraVe, Cetaphil, Vanny Cream. Those are um, good, always good products to use as well. But again, I'm still a big fan of the Aquaphor. <laughs> um, and then when eczema becomes more severe, that's when you're going to come in and start discussing the anti-inflammatory topical medications um, with either your pediatrician or myself. Uh, what about Vaseline? Is that an emollient that you like or would you say Aquaphor, Vanny Cream are, are a little better? So I used to love Vaseline and I still have found that most of my patients do pretty well with Vaseline, but from, from my experience, from reading some, you know, different articles and stuff, one thing I've learned that the main difference between Aquaphor and Vaseline is that Vaseline is still more of a barrier and Aquaphor acts as a barrier and a moisturizer. So that's why I like Aquaphor a little bit better, but I have seen a lot of patients who may not necessarily want to pay a lot of money for the Aquaphor. And so they go for the Vaseline which is totally understandable and appropriate. And they do great with that. And so, you know, it just depends. It's, it's, it's definitely um, okay to try it. And, you know, in terms of that, that next level, commonly as, you know, general pediatricians, we prescribe st- like topical, which means like ointment steroids. What's your, what's your feeling on that? A lot of times, obviously families are worried about the steroid and, you know, I reassure them that, you know, how we use them, it's safe for the child, but in your opinion, are they, are they safe to use and how often would a family end up having to use it? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Parents have the same concerns with me as well. You know, as soon as they hear steroid, you know? Um, So I, I think that the answer to this question is it, it can be safe if it's used appropriately for short periods of time. So by appropriate, I mean, again, short periods of time as well as choosing the correct potency or the strength of the steroid. Um, so the use and the potency of the steroids usually, again, all individualized based on the severity of the eczema, the location of the affected skin, the surface area, so how much of the skin is affected, and the age of the patient. So for example, I'll use milder steroids for, say, younger patients and those with involvement of the sensitive areas like the face 
face, neck, and the groin versus like the rest of the body, the arms and the legs, you can usually use a little bit of a stronger steroid. If a child's eczema is not controlled by moisturizers alone, then I would typically recommend a topical steroid and it's safe to use in the, in, you know, short periods of time. The moisturizers again, target the skin barrier issue, but the topical steroids are really what works at targeting that underlying inflammation that's present in eczema. And if you don't get rid of that inflammation, sometimes you can repair that skin barrier as much as you want. It's going to be very difficult to control the eczema if you don't get rid of that inflammation. I avoid use of the higher potency steroids as much as possible and only recommend short bursts of the higher uh, potency ones. Um, and, and again, only for like really severe flares. And I save those for areas that are not as sensitive on the body. If you have more prolonged use, that's when you're going to probably see the, the, the longer term side effects like the skin thinning, the stretch marks, really systemic adverse effects of topical steroids are pretty rare as long as you use them properly and under proper um, you know, supervision of, of your physician. And then, and you know, this brings us back to the question again of the importance of finding out why a child's eczema keeps getting exacerbated. Because if you eliminate those specific triggers, then you can prevent overuse of topical steroids. But that being said, you know, some children, it's just this allergy, this sensitive skin that's coming from within. It's hard to identify specific triggers. And again, for them, short bursts of the topical steroids is, is absolutely appropriate. So it sounds as if the best course of action is a family, when they either see their pediatrician or if they end up going to an allergist, uh, is coming up with an action plan based on the severity and obviously that particular situation, right? Yes, absolutely. And then I wanted to bring up too, um, Eucrisa is something like a newer medication, mm. which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory topical agent. So I'll recommend that for my patients with mild to moderate eczema, especially ones who have these frequent flares, but they're, you know, they're not severe. Um, so they need more prolonged use of some sort of anti-inflammatory agent. And we want to avoid such, you know, prolonged use of topical steroids and Eucrisa is, is an option for that. So luckily there are different options out there. So is there, you know, in terms of, we talked about that, you know, moisturizing and steroids and obviously you, Chris, as an option if that's needed. In terms of detergents, are there certain detergents that you would recommend the family using? Should they use fabric softener? Should they not? What is the recommendation for clothing and washing the clothes? Yeah, so I would definitely avoid any use of fabric softeners or anything that's going to really make your, your clothes smell really good. I mean, that's the reason that you get that fragrance is you're getting that at, the added chemicals. It's literally something called fragrance mix, and we test for that on a patch test. So that's what's added to these things to make them smell so good. So I would avoid um, most fabric softeners. Usually the detergents that I would recommend would be the all-clear um, all free and clear, as well as Dreft. Those are usually the two that that I, I find works the best. But there's a lot of honestly hypoallergenic brands out there nowadays. As long as it's unscented and you know you don't notice that specifically it's triggering your child's eczema, then they're okay. No, this is great because you know, like I said earlier, so many questions, and I really, really appreciate you going through pretty much all those common common questions I get asked in my office. Is there anything else you would want to add in terms of, you know, final points that a parent should take home in terms of treating their child's eczema um, or anything along those lines? Yeah, I'd love to add a couple things, actually. So um, first of all, I wanted to remind people that eczema is usually the first manifestation of ATP in many patients who will then later get on, go on to develop, you know, the allergic rhinitis, the hay fever, the asthma, or potentially both. This is called, you know, the atopic march. So it's something to keep in mind. And the child who has at least severe eczema, mild eczema, they can grow out of and, you know, it's not necessary to develop something else along the line. But a child who might have more moderate to severe eczema,
eczema, keep a lookout for other things. Like they, they, it's not uncommon for them to then grow up and also develop these seasonal allergies and asthma um, and other things to consider. So that's something that I wanted to bring up. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, and we briefly touched on this before, is that although eczema commonly presents in childhood, it can persist into adulthood and it can actually present in adulthood as well. So it's important really to control it early on to prevent those chronic changes that you can see in the skin. So this is going to be like that hyperpigmentation, um, the skin discoloring, the thickening of the skin. These are reasons that I use when I have, especially my teenage patients, I say, take responsibility for your skin. You know, it should not be your parents who are forcing you to moisturize your skin. Take responsibility early on so that you can prevent these long-term, more chronic changes to your skin. Um, and then another thing is sunscreen, 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 guys. It's still very, very important. I live in Florida, okay? So I talk about sunscreen all day, every day with my patients. So you have to still apply sunscreen even when you have sensitive skin. And if anything, it's more important in children with eczema to apply that sunscreen. What I usually recommend for sunscreens would be those physical blockers instead of the chemical counterparts. So these are going to be like your zinc oxide based sunscreens. These are like the white ones, you know, so, so people don't love them, but they'll protect your skin by completely blocking the UV rays as opposed to just absorbing them like the chemical counterparts. Um, and, and they'll also um, prevent your eczema even from being flared too. So that's good. And then lastly, but probably I think the most important takeaway point that I have is that, as I mentioned earlier, eczema really has a significant effect on the patient and the family quality of life. And children have an increased risk for these psychological distress. Unfortunately, I often have patients who are bullied and I see it too much in my office. And this has to stop. Um, sleep can also be affected in this children, which will then affect, you know, their concentration in school. So I just like to discuss this with parents ahead of time. Just be on the lookout for these kinds of signs. If you have a child with severe eczema that's potentially causing um, you know, issues on their skin, like the hyperpigmentation, the thickening, just talk to them about it and make sure that they know that if there are any issues or any reasons um, you know, to be concerned that they can talk to you about it. Yeah, of all those common, you know, skin conditions we see in pediatric medicine, I, I agree with you. Eczema is very tough, even from my end, when we're trying to get that child on a good regimen. And I see how uncomfortable they are, right? And I, I have one last question for you before you go, because you talked about that that itch, that breaking of that itch scratch cycle. What can a family do in terms of, you know, um, helping reduce that itch? Are there certain medicines that, you know, you would prescribe or the pediatrician would prescribe cutting nails, like what can we do to kind of help them when they're just scratching, 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 and you're trying to get that regimen under control? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that can be done actually. So this is where the antihistamines come into play. Now the studies are pretty mixed on this and they don't actually show that antihistamines can directly, um, you know, reduce the itch, but, but I find that it helps at least if you use the stronger antihistamines that are drowsy, if anything, it helps the child sleep sometimes. And so then that will prevent them from at night, just constantly scratching their skin. Right. And so that helps prevent that itch scratch cycle as well. Um, other things that can be done are when you have those really raw open areas, the child just keeps opening up, keeps opening up or keeps scratching. You can actually do the aquaphor with um, wet wraps. So this is going to be like um, you put the aquifer on, you cover it with one layer of damp gauze and then one layer 
of um, dry gauze. And to, you can do that in certain areas to prevent them from constantly scratching those areas. So those are kind of like the basic things that we do. And then, you know, just in general, moisturizing, um, anti-inflammatory, all those things work. Everything is multi-pronged. Everything works together to really reduce that, that sensation of itch. And then, it's, you know, if we can get the child to, to reduce the, the sensation of itch, then hopefully they reduce scratching and it will slowly break the cycle. And for all of you, obviously out there, antihistamine is like Benadryl, things like that. But um, before you start any of that, you have to make sure you talk to your doctor or your allergist or someone like that. I have to, I have to add that disclaimer because I know we are talking about management. But yes, I, I agree. These, 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 when they're in my office and they're just going at their skin, I'm just, and they're, you know, whatever age they are, but I'm like, oh my gosh, like I feel so sad. And I, I really appreciate you bringing up the the quality of life and the bullying component because people forget that this is a chronic medical condition and it's something that hopefully will go, you know, obviously go away as they become an adult, but it can really impact their childhood years for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's something that unfortunately they wear on their skin quite literally, you know, it's not a chronic condition that they can hide. And so this is why I think a lot of children with eczema, they do suffer from um, bullying. And so that just needs to stop. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I had such a great time talking to you and we could go on and on about so many different things in allergy and immunology, definitely food allergies. We need to do a whole episode on at at a future time. Yes, definitely. I totally agree. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. So everyone, um, please follow Shreya Patel MD. I'm going to be attaching it on our show notes and, you know, we will try to do other episodes. I personally have a huge interest in allergy and immunology. I, that and pediatric GI are my two favorite little niches in, um, pediatric medicine. So thank you so much, Shreya. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, please leave a review, share it with a friend, comment on my social media. And if you're not already, follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram. Love doing this for all of you. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. Talk to you soon. Have you heard about the terrible twos or three-nagers? Yes, the toddler years can be tough. There is no denying that any phase of parenting can be really hard. There may be picky eating, tantrums, and struggles with potty training. But there is a lot of amazing things that you will see your toddler do during these years. I want you to enter the toddler years understanding toddler development and behavior so you can better approach tricky situations with your child. With resources on picky eating, potty training, tantrums, and other common toddler behavior like sleep refusal and toddler development, the toddler resources here at Peds Doc Talk aim to provide you with the knowledge you need to, dare I say, find some or a lot of enjoyment in the toddler years. For more on my on-demand courses, make sure to visit pedsdoctalk.com and check out resources for whatever you need. Have a friend? It also makes a perfect gift. Visit pedsdoctalk.com and click courses for more.